Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Coffee, Crime, and Storytime. It's me, Danielle. I'll have to ask for your patience during this episode. I have been under the weather, and I'm still working on getting my voice back. But it's been too long since I released a new episode, and I was really ready to go. So I hope you are too. Today, we're going to be talking about a story that needs to be heard. It's the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders. It's just before midnight on the 6th of December in 1991. A police officer on patrol sees smoke coming from the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop. He calls it in and the fire department is dispatched as well. As the fire department puts out the fire, the officers don't really think of crime scene preservation. They didn't even think of foul play. They couldn't see inside and figured a stove had been left on and nobody was in there. As they were fighting the flames, they thought everything was normal until they saw a foot. Earlier that evening, around 7 p.m., Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harbison, both 17, were working in the store. Jennifer's younger sister, Sarah, was 15, and she was hanging out with 13-year-old Amy Ayers. They were just hanging in the back while the older girls were working. Um, Pretty normal. I remember I had a sister that worked at a uh, won't-be-named fast food restaurant when I was younger, and it was very common for us to be hanging around waiting for our sister to get off so that I could get a ride home. The girls could start cleaning before closing so that they could get out there once the store closed right at 11. Jen was in the lobby, and Eliza was behind the counter doing their work. Later, statements taken by customers tell a woman who entered just before closing to take home some food. She said there were two other customers there who made her feel off. They were two teens facing one another with nothing on the table but a sack. The boy facing her looked like he might be Hispanic, and his hand was rolling around inside the bag. It made some kind of clanking sound she couldn't really identify. She said that the girls seemed fine, so it must have just been her own paranoia getting to her. She gets her ice cream, and she leaves. Another couple enters while the girls are pre-closing, and they notice two guys sitting in a booth close to the cash register. They sit to eat, and the woman says she felt like the men were listening to the girls. She could see the two men, but not very well. She was actually watching them in the window's reflection. Since it was dark outside, it reflected back more of the inside than the seeing of the outside. She did say, however, that the one that was facing her was thin with light brown hair. These two customers leave, and they are the last to leave before the two remaining boys in the booth. At 10.50, the girls are to lock the doors from the inside. That way, the remaining customers can get out, but no new customers can get in. I worked for a company, and we had the same idea once it was called the 1010 rule. The keys were found in the inside lobby door, so we know for a fact that the girls did this. All the chairs had been flipped up. All the napkin holders had been filled, except for the booth 
closest to the register where those two boys had been sitting. And at 11.03, a no-cash sale button was hit, and the register was emptied of $500. The approach to fighting the fire changed once they realized that there were people inside. And as that first body was found, they realized it wasn't one. It was four bodies, naked, bound, and stacked on top of each other. One officer, Detective Jones, stated that they were burned so badly that they were melted to the floor in the back of the store. Sarah was on the floor by the back door, and Eliza had been placed on top of her. Jennifer was next to them, and Amy was closer to the entrance. Amy was the least burned, implying that she was not necessarily in the same area as the others. And it's Amy that gives the police the most clues and the first indication that the girls had been sexually assaulted. There had been an ice cream scoop found between her legs, pointed toward her pelvis of her naked body. Rape kits were done at the scene to avoid ruining any more evidence than had already been destroyed just in the simple act of putting out the fire. The medical examiner was not amused by this, as this wasn't the normal procedure, and this actually caused some rift. The medical examiner did not swab for accelerant. None of it was found at the scene. It should have been done, but it wasn't, and this causes a big problem later. Booties weren't worn, locks weren't checked, no search for prints was done in the bathroom. The girls had all been shot in the head with a twenty-two caliber. Amy had been shot twice, once in the head, and then with a three eighty shot again. Bruising also indicated that she had been struck and possibly strangled. The details were kept close to the chest to help find the assailant, and this is actually really common. Facts, however, began to leak anyway, which is simply the way of the world, it seems. Tons of false confessions were made, and plenty of suspects were named, almost 350 to be exact. One suspect stuck out, and that was 16-year-old Maurice Pierce, who was found at a nearby mall with a 22 caliber gun, and when questioned, he blamed his friend, Forrest Walburn, who was 15, saying that he had borrowed the gun that night and he had nothing to do with it. Now, when being interviewed, Forrest also states he had nothing to do with it. They were both with two 17-year-olds, Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen, and they'd stolen a car and driven to San Antonio. Nothing matched, and the gun tested didn't match either, so they were let go. A profile is created, and they determine that they believe it's a job done by two men, one of them with a dominant personality. They were most likely white in their late teens, early 20s. The dominant sub was more likely unemployed, living with parents, troubled in school, um, you know, possibly on drugs or alcohol, big underachiever. But even out of those 350 people, no suspect comes to light. And it's eight years after the crime has taken place 
before there's any new developments. Hector Polanco is the next lead on the case, and he keeps coming back to those four boys I just talked about. He requestions them, and Michael Scott breaks and admits that they had cased the joint, so to speak, to rob it. And Maurice and Robert went inside. As it keeps going, then he states he's inside holding the gun. After being interviewed for seven hours, he states he shot the girls per Robert's instruction. Now, I'm going to say that the interrogation methods that happen border on aggressive coercion and bullying, the kind of things that garner false confessions. They continue to push him until his details match making him say what they want and they get their terms of a confession and they move to Robert and they use the same technique to get the confession they want once again. Maurice and Forrest never confess. And again, there's zero physical evidence and it goes nowhere for them. But Michael and Robert are sent to trial separately based on their confessions Both defenses show that the confessions don't completely match the evidence. Both men were convicted. Robert was convicted to death and Michael to life in prison. Both appealed. They appealed based on not being able to face their accuser. In 2006, Robert's conviction was overturned. And in 2007, Michael's was also. But they had to remain in jail while the prosecution decides if they're going to retry. Both men request to have the evidence retested with the, the new DNA evidence testing procedures that they have, and the evidence comes back in their favor. They are not a match. One DNA sample from a rape kit identifies an unknown male, a completely unknown. Now prosecution states that there must have been a mysterious fifth man but this mysterious fifth man is never found so what they do is they go back and they re-poll the jurors giving them this information and seven out of the 12 jurors state that they would not have convicted or they wouldn't convict again if they had been presented with that DNA evidence first so now the men are let go but they're not free. They can be recharged at any time. More testing is done, and a second unknown male DNA returns off other items. So is there now a sixth man? Maurice died in 2010, but the other three are still alive. And where does that leave us? It leaves us with four girls that were murdered to men that seem to have been possibly falsely jailed for quite some time. And we still remain with no answers and no justice for anyone involved. So what are your thoughts? Do you think that maybe those two were involved? Do you think the other two boys were also involved? Or maybe there's a fifth and a sixth man who were also involved. 
I'd really like to know. I appreciate you once again being patient. I know we had a short episode today, but I don't want to push it too much. Uh, If you want to... If you have any stories you'd like to hear, or ones you'd like me to read for you, you can reach me at coffeecrimestorytime at gmail.com. The podcast can also be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Snapchat. Thank you again for joining me today. I'm going to go get some hot tea this time instead of coffee. Put a little honey in it and get ready for our next episode. And as always, until next time.